0: Morning. Good morning, so today I'm going to look at something that Steve Summerall, some of you would have been here when he came last time he preached, last year as well, that he spoke about on the last day of the senior pastor's retreat that he organised for Vineyard and I'm really grateful to him for his notes because he did the talk and I said, send me notes, I said to Andrew, I'm going to do um, Steve's talk the next, the next time I preach and he said, not if I do it first. But, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to say that it was my turn first. It was a great talk. And Steve gave me some books and stuff that he thought might help me understand the subject. And that subject is interior freedom. Before I start, I'm just going to pray. <clears throat> so, let's start by looking at some Bible verses. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his Son and forgave our sins. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The next slide. For the Lord is the Spirit and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery. And the Bible has, and we go woo because that's really exciting, people. The Bible has quite a lot to say about freedom, and it was actually the defining um, event in the Old Testament was the Exodus, which is take delivery of the Israelites from slavery and freedom. And we know that Christianity is a message of freedom and of liberation. God's ongoing invitation to all of us is to live in a place of deeper and deeper freedom. Not just exterior freedom, but interior freedom. I think sometimes when we think of the word freedom, we we think that it applies to our exterior, physical freedoms. We're free to worship in the UK. We're free to choose which religion we follow. We're supposed to have free speech. But I think even more importantly, when we know Jesus and are invited into a place of interior freedom, and that's freedom from cares, from stresses, from unhealthy desires and attachments that can hold us back, from fully experiencing the abundant life that Jesus promises us and that he died for. So many of the contemplative exercises that we learnt about on the retreat were put together by a guy called Ignatius of Loyola. He was a guy who was born into minor nobility in Spain, he was um, a bit of a rake, he dreamed of being a famous knight, Um, He framed his life around the tales of uh, knights of Camelot. He's described as strutting about with his cape slinging open to reveal his tight-fitting hose and boots. I should have dressed up. A sword and dagger at his waist. He was a fancy dresser, a womaniser, sensitive to insult, and a rough, pinkish swordsman who used his privileged status to escape prosecution for violent crimes. Have you guys ever seen Blackadder? He reminds me of Lord Flashheart and uh, I thought you might like to see this. Oh, that is the image that's jumped into my head. Probably looking down right now, and going in there, But in 1521, Ignatius, Lord Flashheart, was wounded in battle, gravely wounded. And while he was recuperating, he started reading about the acts of Jesus, and he experienced this incredible conversion. What he realised was, while he was reading about the acts of Jesus, he felt delighted and excited. And when he was reading about the acts of the knights uh, uh, and the knights of Old, he felt um, kind of bored and distressed and um, dissatisfied and unhappy. And what he realised was that God was speaking to him through his own desires. So when he was reading about Jesus, he was excited and wanted to go out and do it. But when he was reading about the knights, he felt dissatisfied and unhappy. And he realised that that moment, that those good feelings were clues to God's direction for him, which I think is quite important. Cool. And over the years, he became an expert in the art of what we call spiritual direction. He collected his insights and his prayers and his suggestions in a book that he called The Spiritual Exercises. One of the most influential books on spiritual life that was ever written, people still use it today. Very, very um, well used in the contemplative traditions. And with a small group of friends, he founded the Jesuits, that you may have heard of. So in these spiritual exercises, this idea of interior freedom is a pivotal concept. In fact, the basic goal of these spiritual exercises is to, and I quote, lead a person to a true spiritual freedom. So I'm going to read this from First Principle and Foundation by David Fleming. The goal of our life, and as you read it and as I read it, just let, don't just let it be something that passes you by. Let these words really go from head to heart and listen properly. The goal of our life is to live with God forever. God, who loves us, gave us life. Our own response of love allows God's life to flow into us without limit. All the things in this world are gifts from God, presented to us so we can know God more easily and make a return of love more readily. As a result, we appreciate and use all these gifts of God in so far as they help us develop as loving persons, But if any of these gifts become the centre of our lives, they displace God and so hinder our growth towards our goal. In everyday life, then, we must hold ourselves in balance before all of these created gifts, insofar as we have a choice and are not bound by some obligation. We should not fix our desires on health or sickness, wealth or poverty, success or failure, a long life or a short one. For everything has the potential of calling forth in us a deeper response to our life in God. Our only desire and our one choice should be this. I want and choose what better leads to the deepening of God's life in me. Now that sounds great, but actually to me it sounds impossible. And it is impossible for me to truly lay down everything I love and desire in my own strength. I need help to even get to the idea of what that might look like. yet then achieve a small part of it. So the gateway into this interior freedom is what Ignatius and others have termed indifference or detachment. When we think of indifference, we think of it as not caring, not giving a monkeys, having a lack of passion, but it doesn't mean that at all. Indifference means that we hold God's gifts lightly, embracing them or letting them go, depending on how they help or hinder us from becoming the people that God would have us be. For Ignatius, indifference is the path to freedom, The freedom to say yes to God and his invitations, and to say no to those things that would draw us away from him, or hinder us from saying yes to him. The ultimate example of that, I think, is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Bible says that Jesus became greatly distressed, deeply troubled, He told them, my soul is crushed to the point of grief, with grief to the point of death. And I don't think Jesus was prone to exaggeration, so it must have been fair. He struggled and pleaded with God to find some other way, to bring us back into union with him. Pleading, Abba Father, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. But eventually, eventually he came to a place of saying, yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. Jesus chose to accept his Father's will, and he was in a place of total surrender, even though it cost him dearly. His desire was for God to find some other way, but his will was set on doing what his Father wanted. This is a great example of the detachment that Ignatius talked about. Ignatius went on to say that the major roadblock to detachment that we all have are disordered attachments. Things become disordered attachments or disordered loves when they push God out of the centre of our lives and become the key to our identity. The quotes here are, Disordered attachment is a state of clinging that comes from the false belief that something or someone is necessary for our happiness or fulfilment. So how is it formed? First comes a contact with something that gives gives us pleasure, then comes the desire to hold on to it. To repeat the gratifying sensation that this thing or person caused, finally comes the conviction that we will not be happy without this person or thing. We have equated the pleasure it brings us with happiness. An extreme example of this is Gollum in Lord of the Rings. We know he started off as smear and his desire for the ring caused this to happen. Downward appearance is a graphic example of how things can become disordered attachment. Now, for most of us, ours aren't quite that obvious, but I know that for most, if not all, we're all holding on to things as tightly as Gollum held on to that room. Now, disordered attachments turn us into puppets. They're the strings that give the puppeteer, whoever or whatever that is, power to control us. Indifference severs those strings and helps us realize we're not puppets. We are alive. We're real boys and girls. Now we're also free to be and become who God has created us to be in Jesus. As Pinocchio sang when he became a real boy, God, no strings, done. should have done it, shouldn't Yeah, next time. So, what might some of our attachments be? We can look at the clues by asking ourselves some questions. What consumes my thoughts and plans? What holds my allegiance? Who or what tells me who I am? What gives me security and comfort? What makes me feel whole and complete? Who or what meets my deepest needs? And what is the core desire we're seeking to fulfill with these disordered attachments? Is it attention? Is it affection? Is it control? Security? That's quite a big one. Belonging? Significance? Power? Let's look at some examples. The need to be in control. The need to be right. The need to be liked, the need to rescue, help or serve others, the need to be understood and appreciated, the need to be perfect to do it right, the need to be comfortable, the need to be healthy, the need to be esteemed and thought of well by others, the need to be happy, the need to be pain free, the need to be comforted, the need for financial security now and in the future. One of the essential conditions of interior freedom is the ability to live in the present moment. And then there's another quote here, there's something very liberating in this understanding of the grace of the present moment. Even if the whole of our past has been a disaster, even if our future seems like a dead end, now we can establish communion with God through an act of faith, trust, and abandonment. That was Philippe Jacques, who's the uh, author of this quite small book called Interior Freedom that I recommend to you. And if today's suffering isn't enough, We add regrets to that about the past, and then we add worries for the future. No wonder we can feel overwhelmed sometimes. Saint Teresa of Lisieux said this during a really bad time of sickness. I only suffer for one moment. It's because people think about the past and the future that they become discouraged and despair. Nobody has the capacity to suffer for 10 or 20 years, but we have the grace to bear today the suffering that is ours now. Projecting things into the future means we're anticipating it, we're worrying about it. And we know that often the things we worry about never actually happen. Holy Spirit is present with us now, in this moment, in the present. God's mercy is are you every morning. His grace is sufficient for the day. We're told not to worry about tomorrow. Like the manner He provided for the Israelites in the wilderness, His provision of grace is fresh every single day. Listen to this quote by Etty Wilson: We have to fight them daily, like fleas. There's many small worries about the morrow, for they sap our energies. Ultimately, we have just one moral duty to reclaim large areas of peace in ourselves more and more peace and to reflect that towards others and the more peace there is in us the more peace there will also be in our troubled world easy for her to say you'd think but she was the author of many diaries and letters that were written during the time of the nazi occupation and she was eventually killed in auschwitz i'm guessing she had quite a lot to worry about um, on a day-to-day basis but her writing in a journey into peace in the present moment, i just recommend them to you. Well, sometimes, though, it isn't worry that causes us to focus on the future, but the hope of something better or happier. And when I do a talk, I really like to find a personal um, uh, testimony of what Father has done in my life in the area which I'm talking about. However, this time I'm confessing that I'm absolutely useless at staying in the present moment. I live in the future in my head, not worrying about things, but the opposite, actually, more usually thinking about all the new, exciting things um, that things do to avoid my pain in the present moment. I look forward to life becoming better, more settled, more bearable, more joyful, more peaceful, with less problems. But I imagine the Verna of life on a beach in an eternal sunshine with waiters bringing me cocktails. An unlimited supply of books within my reach on my sunbed. That's pure escapism. I actually did text a friend this week saying, Life should be one long holiday in the sun, in my humble opinion. So part of my growing in God is to learn to live and sit in the painful times and experiences with Him, allowing Him to speak His truths into, into the present, and helping me to see things from His perspective. We're not rushing off to this imaginary future. In my head, all is sunny and bright. When we learn to live in the present, deepening our inner life, and live in each moment, practicing the presence of God, as Father the described, we can relax and close our hands. The Bible talks about us being carried on his wings, and I think this is a great picture of living in the unforced rhythms of grace, as it says in the message translation of Matthew 11. Are you tired? Or now? Burned out on religion, my brackets, or life. Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Living freely and lightly? What a beautiful invitation. Freedom from disordered attachments, from the things that take our focus off Jesus and everything he offers us. Freedom from heavy yokes and burdens that if we carry too long, if we carry too much, we regret for the past or fear for the future. The truth is though, we can't free ourselves from these things. To be free from these is really an act of grace. Let's look at Mark 10. It's the story of um, the rich young ruler who raced up to Jesus ran, knelt before him and said, good, good teacher, what must I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus just said, The Lord, don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't do false testimony, don't cheat on your father and mother. And the young man was so excited. I've done all these things, I've done these things since I was a boy. Brackets, and it's good you. I've done all these, so excited. Then it says, Jesus looked at him carefully. And I think Jesus was sitting right into that guy's heart, and loved him, and then he said, you're lacking one thing, just this one tiny thing. Go and sell what you own and give your money to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven, and follow me. But the man was dismayed. He couldn't do it, and he went away saddened. He says because he had many possessions. That young man's possessions were his disordered attachment. I think he loved Jesus and really wanted to follow him, and he wasn't able to give up all that he had. His stuff was more important to him than Jesus was. But the great thing is that Jesus still loved him. He loved him in his weakness. Wealth was never the problem. It was just his attachment to it. So in my life I perhaps back and forth between wanting to be the person who buys the field, because the Pearl of Great Price is in it, and the person who is the rich young person who loves my stuff more. Too much to properly follow Jesus, too much to go genuinely and heartfeltly offering everything, kids, grandkids, house, everything, reputation. I ping back and forth, but I do know that even in my weak, weakest times, Jesus still loves me. I'm secure in that knowledge and he'll help me to grow into someone who cares more about him and his plans than my own plans and my stuff. Once we become aware of disordered attachments, we can respond with, oh my gosh, that's too hard, and walk away, like the young guy did. Or we can say, God, thank you for showing me this. Show me, please help me change. So how do we begin to even enter into this freedom? I think that to fully accept God's love for us, we need to embrace our humanity, our our weaknesses, our limitations, our frailties, our lack of capacity to change in our own strength. Contemptive writer Joyce Rock wrote, I used to think, if we could just get rid of these things I don't like about myself, then life will run smoothly. I'll feel a lot better about myself. She goes on, now I think differently about my flaws. I see how being fully human is a paradox. Growing and becoming more of a person whose life resembles the values of Jesus is essential. At the same time, my flaws are some of my greatest treasures like grains of sand and oyster shells that grate and irritate to become pearls they give me the opportunity to continue to grow and change. Acceptance of ourselves and what is true in, of us in our lives is a foundational practice if we to experience interior freedom. We need to learn to love and accept ourselves all the while asking God to help us in our weaknesses and conform us into the image of Jesus. God God's realistic, His grace doesn't work without any make-believe. His grace works in real, specific, actual, concrete, arenas of our lives. He loves the person we are now, the person we've always been, not the cleaned-up, perfect version of religion would have us be. Remember, he loved the rich young ruler, even with his lust for riches. Jesus spent time with the real people of his world, people like us. He shunned the religious hypocrites and hung out with um humanity warts and all i once heard someone say that god can't look on sin and i figured jesus must walk around with his eyes shut and he must have had a blindfold on when he was walking around the earth once in church during a time my father was releasing me from performance and striving and fear and legalism i was sitting in my seat um this was many years ago now sitting in my seat head in my hands doing my lonely world impression I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for some thought or deed um, that I saw as a huge issue, obviously now I can't remember what it was, but I saw it as a huge issue. I thought it was a blockage to my relationship with God. But he spoke really clearly to me then and he said, your sin is not connected to me. And as he said that, I just had this real sense of detachment and removal for whatever the thing was that was weighing on me. My relationship with God has not changed one iota by those times when I fell short of his glory, which is what my weaknesses are. I am safe and secure in God's arms, and nothing, nothing, nothing will ever change that. Do I fall short of his glory? Yes. But now it's my love for him and my family that causes me to want to be changed. Not his fear, not fear of his anger or his disappointment anymore, which is what it used to be. God's grace can be blocked in our lives if we fail to admit and even embrace the fact that we're weak. We have defects and some not so good habits in our lives. We try to hide these things from ourselves, from God, and others because we're ashamed. The fact that God's kindness leads to repentance should allow us to be kind and gentle with ourselves. We can be our own worst critics. How many times do we hear, oh, I shouldn't have done that, i got that wrong, I'm rubbish, I'm stupid, I must do better. Try harder, be more holy. What a holy trap we fall into. There's absolutely no way we can change ourselves. We can change our behavior, but that's just an outward manifestation. It's not at heart level. Self-discipline is important, but I think it should be just used as a stepping stone towards complete freedom towards metanoia. That is translated repentance in the Bible. It means the changing of our minds and our direction towards God's best for us, back towards our original design, our true selves. During worship last week, I saw a picture, something like this. How is our behavior modified? And I just saw quite clearly um, this list. I'm gonna just repeat some of this for the benefit of the tape. Um, this list, us authority figure enemy, how is our behaviour modified by these? Shame, criticism, embarrassment, belittling, control and manipulation, fear-based thinking, self-effort, law and religion, emotional blackmail, you must, you should, you have to. That's the things that we hear when people try and as children, from school, from some religious teachers, from the world that's what we will modify your behaviour by these things. How does God modify our behaviour? How does he bring us to repentance? To metanoia, to change your heart. Just one word, kindness. That's it. And I absolutely love that. So we must be as kind to ourselves as God is towards us. Teresa of Avila wrote, Learn to sit amongst the weeds of our life, if God is gardener, not self. Now, weeds can be tricky little suckers, as I'm sure you know. And if I have a mad moment and decide to pull up the weedlings out of the rockery, Nigel comes behind the sign, because when the ground's hard, I leave the roots in the soil and chuck our heads on the grass. Another confession. But our lives can be like this. Our hearts can be hard ground, and it's no good trying to pull up the weeds, because the roots will break off and lay dormant, ready to sprout so soon our backs are turned better way to deal with the weeds is to soak them. In. The water, water the ground, is a bit soft so they come out, roots and all. Soaking the weeds, being with God in our weeds, soaking them in His love, softening the ground of our hearts is the best way to get rid of the things in our hearts that cause us to miss God's best for our lives. The roots are gone, so the fruits are gone, and there is more root in the soil of our hearts than the good plants whose fruits are the fruits of the Spirit. Let's look at Galatians 5 in the Passion Translation. But the fruit produced by the Holy Spirit within you is divine love in all its varied expressions. Joy that overflows, peace that subdues, patience that endures, kindness in action, a life full of virtue, faith that prevails, gentleness of heart, and strength of spirit. Never set the law above these qualities, for they're meant to be limitless. So in conclusion, we all have things in our lives that we desire or think are important, and that good and healthy things are. But let's make sure that we hold these things lightly in God's grace so they don't stop us from fully embracing the abundant life that we're offered in Jesus. But let's also be kind to ourselves when we struggle with the not so good things, when we fall short of God's glory, and let's try and sit with him in our weeds letting him soak us with his love and his kindness so that we can live in the freedom that Jesus died for. Shall we stand?